Turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave at them and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, even if that's a little bit outside of your personality, it's good to do that. Always best to uh, not only hear the word of God, but to see it with your own eyes. And they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands so that you can do uh, both of those things. On Sunday morning, we're studying the uh, uh, epistle of First uh, Peter began it last week, so we haven't made a lot of inroads into it, uh, as you'll see when we read our passage for this morning, which is in chapter 1, verse 3. Peter wrote by the Holy Spirit, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, there's a lot of mercy in this room, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your voice. We thank you that you are speaking, God, and that you speak through your word, Lord, and that you speak by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that there is no subject in the world that you are afraid to address. There's nothing that you won't speak to. We thank you that subjects that are completely ignored or avoided by the culture, uh, unaddressed, Lord, that you uh, enter into those subject matters and you deal with them because you know those are important things, even if they're not deemed important by the culture. And, Lord, we thank you not only that you're a speaking God, but that you have given us the capacity to hear your voice by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'd speak to us from this single verse in First Peter chapter 1. We pray that everything that that verse is intended to accomplish in all of us who are standing before you, who are Christians, who know you, Lord, that that would be accomplished. And then each one that is standing before you, that hasn't yet put their faith in your son for salvation, that this passage would do its needed work in their life as well. And Lord, we trust you for that work of your Holy Spirit in this room. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, giving you thanks for him this morning. Amen. Please be seated. When we find ourselves in the middle of deep trials or difficult trials uh, or suffering as Christians, one of the things that we are in need of at times like that is encouragement. And while encouragement that we can offer one another as one human being to another is uh, valuable, it is uh, still uh, severely limited. When we find ourselves in trials that literally disorient us, or in suffering that we can't make heads or tails out of what we're in the middle of. And this is the kind of trials that the Christians were in that Peter wrote to 2,000 years ago. When we, fall, when we find ourselves in those kind of trials, um, human voices really, and what they have to say, they really can't make a dent in that kind of suffering or trial. We really need to hear from God. And we really need the encouragement 
that can come from him alone and need to hear his voice because what he has to say becomes so important to us because only he is greater than any trial or any difficulty that we find ourselves in. Only he has authority or sovereignty or all powerfulness related to anything that we're suffering or that we're going through. And as a result, Peter proceeded to encourage these uh, Christians, these suffering Christians 2,000 years ago and us as well this morning by reminding them and us of several things as he begins this letter of several things that belong to us which lie safely beyond the reach of any trial we find ourselves in or any suffering or any difficulty. Blessings that are ours as Christians. Blessings that belong to us because of our faith in Christ. That because they've been given to us by God and not by the world, the world can't take these blessings away. So matter, no matter how difficult life becomes in this fallen world, these blessings lie beyond the reach of the circumstances of these, this fallen world. They are immovable. They are steadfast. They are always ours, morning, noon, night, any season in life. And this morning we want to examine the first of these blessings that we that Peter speaks of in verse three, the fact that we possess as Christians a living hope. Now, how the Bible uses the word hope and how we use the word hope, hope in the culture, are two entirely different things. In general, in the culture, when we use the word hope as a part of our vocabulary, we use it with the idea that there's a sense of uncertainty about whatever it is that we're hoping for. So we're wanting to go to a store on maybe a holiday weekend or something, and we say, oh, I, I, I'm sure it's going to be absolutely jammed, crowded. I hope it isn't crowded. Or we're beginning the commute to work in the morning. We say, I hope the freeways, there isn't an accident or a traffic jam. Or we're going to take a plane somewhere and we begin that morning by thinking to ourselves, I hope the flight is on time. It's something that we're wishing for, so to speak, something that we're hoping for. But we have no confidence that it will be the case. It's interesting, though, when the world when the Bible uses this word hope, as we find it in the Bible, and it's certainly true of the word for hope that in the original language that Peter uses here in verse three, when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't convey any a sense of uncertainty. In fact, the word means to anticipate with absolute confidence, to know absolutely that something is going to happen in our lives, even if it hasn't happened yet. It is the confident expectation of good because God has promised it to us. Well, if that's what hope is from a biblical perspective, then we ask ourselves in light of the verse, what in the world then is a living hope? What does a living hope refer to? Well, one of the things that this tells me is that not all hopes are created equal. Not all hopes are alive. Evidently, there are dead hopes or hopes that we place upon certain things or people or places and they end up 
uh, putting us on on a dead end. The fact of the matter is that in this fallen world that we live in, not everything people put their hope in is worthy of their hope. The fact of the matter is, in the fallenness of this world, most hopes that people experience at some point in their life end up becoming a casualty as they continue to live life. That hope ends up crashing and burning before their very eyes or this great hope that they had concerning life ends up uh, being greatly disappointed. Sometimes you think about concerning our own lives, some of us that are beyond the age of youth, the dreams that we had in our youth about what life would become, what we would accomplish in life, where we would end up in life. And then so often because of the fall in this of this world, we can look back sometimes and say all of those hopes or expectations that I had, uh, they've all been dashed or most of them have just by virtue of life unfolding. Sometimes hopes are placed, hope is placed on getting married or having children and that it's going to uh, result in some particular something. And usually the expectation is something uh, bordering on perfection. And then we suddenly discover that no marriage is absolutely perfect and no child is absolutely perfect. And sometimes those experiences in life can leave us disappointed as well. And it can be true of everything in life. Our dreams, our jobs that uh, we were dreaming of or hoping for, athletic accomplishments, health, lots of different things. And one of the things that uh, happens as we grow older sometimes in this fallen world, that hope can gradually give away not just to disappointment over life, but it can actually make us very jaded. It can make us very cynical about life. Allow me to give you a few quotes um, from those who have experienced this kind of thing in life. Robert G. Ingersoll, he wrote concerning hope. He said, hope is the only universal liar who never loses his reputation for veracity, for truthfulness. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, he that lives upon hope will die fasting. Perky. Lord Byron said, what is hope? Nothing but the paint on the face of existence. The least touch of truth rubs it off. And then we see what a hollow cheeked harlot we have got a hold of. It's like you sit next to him on a plane. <laughs> a poet of our age, she wrote, my great hope. You know, as life has gone under the bridge, this is what it comes down to for her. She said, my great hope is to laugh as much as I cry. Now, that's real. That's real about life in this fallen world. Add a little pop culture to all of this and literature. Arthur Miller, he wrote, maybe all one can do is hope to end up with the right Regrets. Well, when you read quotes like that and you realize 
that that characterizes a lot of people in life. The important thing that it does for us this morning is it makes us realize that hope isn't as plentiful as we think that it is in the world. And there are many, many people, maybe perhaps most people live or end up living hopeless lives. And thus, when someone comes on the scene in human history and offers to men, women, and children that are trying to navigate the fallenness of this world, hope and a living hope that we realize something is being offered to us by God that is literally priceless. And with this in, in mind, notice that Peter declares to us as Christians that we are possessors of a living hope, not just hope. But a living hope. So I ask myself, what in the world is a living hope? A living hope is a hope that cannot be adversely affected not only by life, but it cannot be adversely affected by death. It's a hope that lies, again, beyond the reach of life and the fallenness of this world. It lies beyond the reach of death. It's a hope that has conquered death. And then that raises the next question. Peter knew that we would be asking, and that is, what in the world is the source of this living hope? In order for living hope to exist, it can't be self-existent. That's a dream. In order for a living hope to exist, it must have some kind of a basis. And so what is the basis for this living hope? And Peter declares that the Christian's hope in the face of death rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead reveals to us his power, his authority, his victory over death. And because of our faith in him as Christians, it provides us, his resurrection provides us with a victory over death. And the reason that Jesus can offer everlasting life to us is because he has defeated death. You must possess everlasting life. You must have defeated death in order to then offer everlasting life to anyone else. And only Jesus can offer everlasting life because only Jesus has conquered death. And mankind needs a Savior who has conquered death. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is that Savior. To follow any so-called God or religious system that, number one, has no answer for the existence of death. And number two, provides no victory over death would be a complete waste of time for any human being. Because the Bible teaches that death is the enemy of all mankind. And without the defeat of that enemy, all hope is in vain because death will ultimately kill that hope by having the final say in the life of every single person in human history. Why would I follow a God? who has no answer for one of the great enemies of mankind. That wouldn't be a God that would be worth following. 
for our life would then be better spent just eating, drinking, being made merry because tomorrow we die. To give ourselves completely to pleasure if death is going to be, have the final say in each one of our lives. But thankfully, Jesus' resurrection has provided us with a victory over death. Never, ever, ever trust in any so-called Savior or God or religious teacher or religious system or philosophy or person, place or thing concerning your eternity who cannot also supply you with an explanation for the existence of death in the human condition. Why would I trust anyone's theological or philosophical musings about what happens after death if they cannot explain to me the reason for the existence of death and the human condition at all? Why would I believe them as they speak about death and what happens after death if they cannot explain to me why it exists and thus I don't have a track record to test what they have to say after death about how it came into existence in human history? Have you ever wondered why we die as human beings? Not just thinking about the fact that people die every time we go to a funeral. Or even thinking about what happens after death. But even a little bit deeper than that. Asking ourselves, why does death exist at all in the human condition? Why don't we live forever? Why do we age? Why do we die? Why is that a universal experience in the world today? I don't think that there's any explanation that so satisfies that question as God's explanation in the first three chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis. People look at the Bible and they say, oh, that Bible is hopelessly complex. It is a very deep book, to be sure, but it is a very simple book. The Bible is very simply a record of God's creation of man, the fall of man, and God's redemption of man. That's the entirety of the book. The creation of man, Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The fall of man, chapter 3. And the rest of the book is all about the heart of a loving God to rectify the consequences of that sin in that Garden of Eden to bring us back into relationship with him. The Bible teaches that death reveals every single one of us to be a descendant of that ancient fallen Adam and Eve. And I think a person can legitimately ask if we ever take the time to just stop and think about things. I think a person can legitimately ask, how do I know that the Bible's record of sin and the fall of man in that ancient Garden of Eden is true. How can I know personally, experientially, physically, how can I know that that fall occurred in, with Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden? What proof is there that I am a descendant of Adam, that I am fallen, as the Bible teaches? And you'd expect that God would have to take out a marker board and begin to put all kinds of formulas upon it, that you'd need a Ph.D. to begin to make any sense of it. And he doesn't do that. God's explanation 
to those questions is so simple that a child can understand it. And he answers those outstanding questions in just four words. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he put it this way. In Adam all die. Death. The existence of death. Because you die, death reveals each and every one of us to be a descendant of Adam and Eve. As I like to put it, it puts a rope around every one of our ankles that takes it all the way back through thousands of years of history and plants the stake in that garden. Every one of us is historically connected with that garden. And death proves it. Never, ever, ever trust in any so-called savior or God or religious system or religious teacher or philosophy or person, place or thing with your eternity who has not also conquered death. One day, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they came to Jesus. And they demanded a sign of him. Show us a sign. Jesus understood immediately what it was that they were asking. They wanted a sign that would satisfy them that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God and God the Son, and the promised Messiah or Savior of the world. So they asked for another sign. And they had signs all around them, from the north to the south of Israel to the east to the west of Israel. People that had once been blind could now see. They were once deaf, they can hear. They were lepers, and they had been cleansed of their leprosy. They'd even been raised from the dead. But Jesus conceded them one more sign. And so he said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But he said, no sign will be given unto it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what sign did he give them? The sign of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so too he, Jesus, would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only. And then he would be resurrected from the dead. And what was he communicating? Don't trust in any salvation or Savior or Messiah that has not conquered death. And again, the number of books or audio books or TV shows that you can watch or all private conversations that you can have with people. There are so many people who are willing to wax philosophical about anything and everything, including life and death and eternity and everlasting life. But if they have not conquered death, they're not to be trusted. And Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but then he proceeded to demonstrate his authority over death through his resurrection. There is only one reason that there is a living hope at all in the world today. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that open demonstration of his authority over it. I am. Sometimes you read the Bible and they're very, very sobering scenes within the Bible, especially the book of Revelation. But there's one 
a scene in there that is both sobering and amusing to me. The Apostle John is in the heavenly scene and he sees Jesus not only ascended into heaven, but in this glorified condition in Revelation chapter one. And we're told that as he sees Jesus, he then falls down at Jesus's feet as dead. I'm not here. 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 I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this. I don't exist. I, you know, he's terrified. Jesus knew it. And so he laid, we're told, his right hand on John and said to him, don't be afraid. Why would he say that except he was afraid? Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, take a good look, John. I am alive forevermore. And then what I love, he said, I have the keys of Hades, hell, and of death. When you have a key to something, you have authority over it. When you have a key to a door, you have authority over that door. You have authority over the room, over the house, over anything that lays on the other side of that door. You have authority over that car when you have the key to the door of that car. And Jesus is speaking of his absolute authority, not only over hell, but his authority over this thing called death. And again, the reason that he can give everlasting life is because he has defeated death. And marvel of marvels, not only has he defeated death, not for himself, but that he is eager then to share that victory with you and me. Because we were the ones that were in need of that victory. So how do we come to possess this living hope and to make it our own? And Peter tells us there, it's by being begotten Again, God has begotten us again as Christians to a living hope. And that phrase begotten us again literally means to be born again. He has born us again into this living hope. It's the same phrase that Jesus used when he spoke to a man by the name of Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. In John chapter three, here's a man who is off the graph religious. And is as unprepared for death and heaven, access to heaven, as any of the harlots that repented of their sin and turned to Jesus in his public ministry. And Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he said, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, again, this is a humorous place because Nicodemus has got this gigantic, great theological mind. You didn't, you didn't reach the positions he reached without that. And he's trying to figure this, what Jesus is talking about, being born again. And he's trying to figure the whole thing out physically. And so he said, how can a man be born when he's old? And he said, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's trying to figure out what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, talking about a spiritual birth, not a second physical one, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Nicodemus, you've already had a flesh birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? It speaks of a spiritual birth. Every one of us in this room has been born physically. But we need a spiritual birth. We don't need to be born a second time physically. It won't do us any good. But we need to be born spiritually in order to have a relationship with God, the very thing that we've been created for, a relationship with him. The Bible teaches that when God created man, he created man in his image. So what do we deduce from that? Do we deduce that God is uh, five foot seven inches tall and 170 pounds? No, that's not what we conclude. The Bible teaches that God is a triunity or a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God created man in his image, he created us, Adam and Eve, as an inferior trinity of spirit, soul, and body. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, spirit, soul, and body. And God has chosen to have relationship with man In the realm of the spirit. And God spoke to Adam and Eve and he said, of all of the trees in the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Next scene. They're at the base of the tree. They didn't work a cruise in or any kind of a vacation. They didn't see Europe. They didn't. They're at the base of that tree, and they partook of that forbidden fruit, and they ate of it. And on that day, just as God promised, they died. How did they die? Physically? Impossible. Our presence in this room excludes that. How did they die? They died spiritually, cut off from relationship with God. And there is only one solution to the catastrophe Of a spiritual death. And that is a spiritual birth. And that's why Jesus said we must be born again. So that when a person in a room like this or anywhere in the world, as long as it happens in our lifetime, comes to God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I am less than perfect. Been that way all my life. And I believe that you are so holy and perfect that but one sin can separate me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you love me so much that you sent your son into the world to die on that cross to pay the penalty for my sin and provide me with forgiveness. And so I repent. I turn away from my own sin, my own self-will, and I turn to you and I put my trust in the Savior that you have provided And when a person does that, the greatest miracle that occurs in human life occurs in that person's life. God's Holy Spirit comes into their life. And now we have the capacity to enjoy the relationship with God that we were created to have. And once we're in this relationship that we've been created for, one of the great, great things that is added to our lives by being born again is Jesus' victory over death becomes our victory. I think about how rich I am, how rich we are as Christians. 
Because death, no, we, we've been freed from what the Bible calls the bondage of the fear of death in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. God looks at the whole, all of mankind, all the way through human history, all the way from the time of the Garden of Eden. And when he looks at mankind, whatever kind of appearances we put on, however we present ourselves, but that at our core, by and large, men and women live in bondage to the fear of death. There is that realization that this enemy exists in human history that he is batting a thousand, and that I am not going to escape this enemy. And so it looms there in us in terms of thinking about it and giving consideration to that and how, what is the solution to this enemy called death. And when we put our faith in Christ, death no lo- is no longer our undefeated enemy, but has been reduced to a servant that then ushers me at the point of me laying down this tent into the glory of heaven once our ministries are over. Everlasting life for the child of God is not something we receive when we die. It's something that we possess now. I think what a great blessing it is for the Christian to live our lives knowing that death has been conquered for us by Jesus, that we don't have to give it a second thought, let alone live in the bondage of the fear of death. That may not mean as much to you as it means to me, but it's always meant a lot to me. I've always been the personality that I've got to have the, ma- the macro figured out before I can enjoy the micro, even as a kid. And I remember being in my late teens and then certainly into my early 20s. At the time where you're you know, supposed to feel like death is a million miles away from you, it can never happen to you, you know, you're, we're indestructible at that age, that wasn't my concept of death. I had one of my favorite teachers in high school, teaching biology, Mrs. Kruger, and had her class one morning, and then lunch period came, and then after lunch the word went out through the entire campus that during the lunch period she had had a brain aneurysm and had died in the teacher's break room. I had one of my best friends late in my senior year who I was in English class and in high school and waiting to get out of that so I could go play basketball the final period of the day and and then on into the afternoon. And he went in and he had gym class and he was playing just an innocent game of basketball and he had a dental retainer in his mouth and he swallowed it. And though the fire station was just 200 yards away before they could notify people and get help over there, he died right on the gym, gym floor that I played a million games of basketball on, not to count all the crashes and all the everything and everything. So I looked at it and I realized the reach of death, this isn't just an old person's thing. So before I came to know the Lord and really walk with him, that was something that was real to think about. This thing was hunting me down. So I gave myself to running. Those of you who lived through the 70s, the shag haircuts and the 
bell bottoms and the whole deal. Credence Clearwater and all the other ungodly stuff. And very unfashionable stuff. Though it does seem to be making a resurgence. But I remember that for the first time, like never before in the United States of America, people began to run. Running, 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 running. And I always liked sports and athletics, so I just began to run. Now, there's a little bit of that running whole side of thing was just to run, to outrun death, to stay fit, keep the heart right, the whole deal and everything. And I ran and I ran and I ran. I was a human skeleton. I was 30 pounds lighter than I am right now. It's a human skeleton running around that town. Had a runner's deal, and I enjoyed the whole thing. But in the back of my mind, I was trying to outrun death. I ate bran like you can't eat, know how to eat bran and everything you could put bran on because that was the big bran phase. And vitamins like you can't believe and the vitamin C, but it's got to have the bioflavonoids and they come from the rose hips and the whole uh, deal. So I'm running like crazy. And then Jim Fix, who wrote the, the book, the, the Bible on running for that era, one day we all find out he dies of a heart attack. Now, that's, a hard, that's hard news for a guy that's trying to run, outrun death. So we're all getting into our diet, you know, and try, not so much to lose weight in, in those days. And, and we're into diet and, okay, what's a healthy diet and this kind of thing. And somebody gave me Adele Davis's book on a healthy diet and all. So I start to read that whole thing. And then somebody informed me that Adele, diet, Adele Davis died of her diet. No matter where I went, I, I couldn't get away from this whole subject matter that was going on. But it was a lot of it was just me. And and I just looked at the big picture in life and I saw this big the the the, the macro, the big picture. And I thought to myself, if the big questions in life don't get answered, like why does death exist and is there an answer to death and what happens when we die? And then what happens after we die? If I don't have answers to those questions, then the micro, the daily, doesn't amount to anything. So why not just live like an animal if death is just going to be the final word on, on the whole thing and there's no victory to be found there? There are other people. They're different personalities. They try to deal with death by ignoring it, pretending that it doesn't exist. It's like being told not to think about a pink elephant. Everywhere you turn, you're reminded that it does exist. And just the fact that so much effort goes into ignoring the subject indicates that there's a consciousness that death is approaching at some time. And a victory is needed. And then I think related to our culture, perhaps the strongest of all is other people who just stay stoned. All the time, not just on drugs and alcohol, but we're a culture that stays absolutely drugged on entertainment, activity, moving to the next, 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 and keeping ourselves so busy that we never stop to even think about the subject of death. But if you haven't given any thought to death, the reason for its existence, what happens after it, the solution to it, then the Bible teaches you're not thinking. You're really not thinking. And you need to think about this subject. And the reason we need to think about it is the Bible knows and the God of the Bible knows 
if anybody thinks about this with any kind of sobriety, that person is going to end up putting their faith in Jesus for salvation because he is the only answer to death in human history. Now, Peter not only informs us of this great blessing of being born again to a living hope, but he also calls on us to give praise to the Lord for it. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has borne us again to this living hope. And he's basically saying to this group of suffering Christians saying, listen, no matter what else you do or you don't have, the fact that you possess this is reason to give praise to God. And so for a group of people like us in a room like this, we don't want to just leave it the passage and not have that translate into actual thanksgiving in our heart as Christians to God to say, thank you that you have defeated death for me. Thank you that you have given me a living hope in the face of death. Thank you that I don't have to live every day of my life dominated by death, but that I can live my life in accordance with your will, accomplishing your plan, and then to leave everything else to you. It's a great blessing that we possess in our lives as Christians. And no matter what we're facing in life, if we possess everlasting life, if we possess nothing more than that, we have reason to give thanks and praise to God. So this would be a good place for you to just pull a little hanky out of your back pocket and go, well, before the Lord, just give him praise. Give him thanks, at least in your heart, for providing us with a living hope. The very thought of this living hope, the great Apostle Paul, tremendous theologian, but very much an emotional side to his Christian walk, wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, and I think speaking for all of us as Christians, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No one can know true joy or true peace in life until they have an answer for death and a victory over death. And only Jesus has that answer. Only Jesus has provided that victory, there is only one proper preparation for death and the eternity that follows it, and that is by putting our faith in Jesus as our personal Savior. Again, as Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to begin a relationship with God, the very relationship that you have been created for, and for Christ's victory over death to now become your victory. Jesus didn't die on the cross and then be raised from the dead because he had a personal need related to death and a victory over death. 
He did it to provide it for us. And he is eager to give that living hope to you today. Take advantage of the opportunity this morning. Anyone who stops and really thinks about the life that goes on around us all day, every day, that person, God knows, is ultimately going to be led by the Holy Spirit right to the feet of Christ because he alone has the answer for all of the big questions in life and the little questions in life as well. And wonder of wonders, he loves us and he longs to have a relationship with us and he longs to save us and to bring us into a peace-filled, abundant life where we've been freed from the bondage of the fear of death. We give him praise this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your abundant mercy that you have shown us in sending us the Savior that you have. And we thank you, Lord, from this place today for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, at great expense to yourself for introducing him into human history in order to provide for the greatest needs in our life, including a victory over death. Thank you, Lord, that you not only know all of the questions that men and women should be asking, but you have supplied all of the answers in him. Thank you for making us born again into this living hope. We thank you for the pricelessness of that single blessing from Christ in our lives. And we give you praise, Lord, for it in his name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.